So I, uh, I've been learning a lot in this new life that I have in Northern California. Maybe you don't know me. My name is Drew and I'm one of the pastors here. But I grew up in the North Bay and then I, I kind of had a desert season of my life called Southern California. Anyone with me there, right? Like God put me in the wilderness and I was in the desert and in about 10 years, I got called by, I think God, to, to move back here to plant Vintage Grace. And so this is God's land. You all know that, right? Like this is God's country in NorCal. Amen. And, and I love it up here. My wife's from Shasta. And then I grew up, like I said, North Bay. So, so this is good. But I'm learning a lot in this new tenure in, in NorCal. And really the biggest thing, I, I watch the weather, because maybe you've heard me say this, but you all live on the surface of the sun. You heard that before? Like I try to work it into most sermons because I'm miserable sweating on stage, right? And even today you're like, Drew, I just feel so bad for you. And I'd have to ask you why, because there's lots of reasons but I got myself dressed, I know it's hot, I put on the long sleeves, if nothing else, just to complain, right? Like, this is where we live, and so I'll watch the news and the, the meteorologists will get up on there, or I'll pull up my app on your phone, right? And it says, here's the temperature, and this is what it feels like. If it feels like that, then it is that, right? And so like, I've asked guys, like, why do you get up there and say, because apparently Mulberry, I don't even know what state that's in, that's the surface of the sun also, right? But it's 97, but it feels like 108, which to me means it's 108. And so I've actually literally asked before, I'm like, what does that even mean? Well, it's this combination between humidity and the outside air temperature. And I'm like, you've already lost me. And then they'll pull out graphs, right? They'll pull out like charts. And I'm like, it's just hot. That's what it means, right? And that's why I use the term surface of the sun. But it's when your, your body temperature can't regulate and then you sweat. You all know that sweating is a gift from God, right? So you're welcome, because I'm good at sweating. Like, there's not all things I'm good at, but sweating, I'm crushing it. And it's this evaporation, it's this cooling of your body. It's this body saying, hey, this isn't what it's supposed to be, and just for what it's worth, I am convinced heaven will not be the surface of the sun. This is not what it's supposed to be. Y'all don't live in heaven in Northern California. You think you do in El Dorado Hills. This is not heaven, it's not even close. But we do have a lake in our backyard, which is really nice. But here's the truth of the matter. This is not what we were designed for. And there's all sorts of different types of heat. And when I use heat, I'm metaphorically saying pain. There's all sorts of times that the, the temperature gets dialed up. And here's my prayer for you as your pastor, that on some level you can metaphorically buy some climacool undershirts. These things are amazing, right? Like they take your sweat, they cool you down. Doesn't always work for me, but I'm trying anything. And my prayer is that you would start to see that as the temperature gets dialed up, that God has not left you, that he is with you right now, that he's also for you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 42. This is where we've been in our series, because what we've seen in the life of Joseph is the temperature, the pain keeps getting dialed up. It goes from bad to worse to worse, and yet we know at Vintage Grace that there is no bad news in the kingdom of God, Amen. Just news that he's using for his glory and for your good. So how does that work when it's really hot outside and my body is sweating and I'm saying, what is going on, God? What are you doing? It's why we encourage you to pray the prayer every morning that you wake up. God, what are you inviting me into? God, I know the temperature is increasing, but what are you doing? Because you're the author and perfecter of faith, because you hold the world in your hands. What are you doing? And so we've been watching this in the life of Joseph. To be completely honest, this has been a date on the calendar that I have circled that I couldn't wait to get to. 
I, I told you guys about seven weeks ago that we were going to step into a season as a church of eight weeks of suffering. Remember, we're ending in Romans chapter 8. We had two weeks there that we were wrapping up that series and then starting six weeks. And in the life of Joseph, over and over and over again, we see suffering. We see the temperature increase. We see the story start where the brothers intend for evil. They, they throw Joseph into a pit. And yet in that morning, we stopped and we said, no, God is good. And all the time, and we said that morning, we said, this can't just be something we say or we put on a mug. We're praying that God would put it in our hearts. And when we look at the life of Joseph, it's starting to unfold. He goes from the pit to the prison. He has a moment in the palace there, right, in chapter 39, and yet Potiphar intends for evil and falsely accuses him of rape. And yet in that context, we say, church, God is good, and all the time, and my prayer for us at Vintage is this is not muscle memory of the head, but transformation of the heart. This is not just words that we speak, but it is who we are because we know who he is. Because there is an enemy, Satan, who exists to kill, to seek, to divide, to destroy. And yet what Satan intends for evil, this will be next week's big idea, God redeems and reclaims for good. Satan wants you to feel forgotten when the temperature goes up. Satan wants you to feel like God has left the earth. It feels that way sometimes. But you are not forgotten. In Joseph, we saw last week that God is with us and he's for us. And that's what we're looking at. And yet last week, Joseph predicts the famine. Have anyone ever studied history? It's kind of like just one story on repeat until Jesus reclaims it all. But what we see in history is we see that the world has failed in the past, is presently failing, and will continue to fail into the future until God makes a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we see. COVID was such a gift. I had so many conversations with people. They were like, man, do you know the world is losing their minds? I'm like, the world already lost their mind the moment they knocked Jesus off the throne of their heart. That's not new news. That's a story that's been on repeat. The question is, are we going to see Jesus in the story and see that he's redeeming and reclaiming it? And so when we start to see these patterns of brokenness, some brokenness comes from my sin, your sin. Some brokenness just comes from a fallen, broken world, the effects of sin. But in that context, that Jesus is with you and for you, and when we see the pattern of brokenness, I also am convinced we see an opportunity to have a pattern for goodness and the glory of God. My hope, my prayer for you as your pastor is actually that when the temperature gets turned up, you can say, because you've prayed faithfully, God, what are you inviting me into? You don't run away from the heat. You can walk into it because if God's calling you, you move. That we can predict the future because we know he holds the future. Not what, but we know who. And so as we look at the life of Genesis, today is going to be a sermon not like normal. Normally we go verse by verse, we take a few verses, in a couple weeks we'll be back in Romans 9, and I'll talk a little slower, but this week I'm going to talk extremely fast. Five chapters, church, you ready? Five chapters we're going to cover this week. And here's what I love, we're going to see a large narrative, a large pattern, a large theme of who God is. We're going to see that today. We're going to look back at the life of Joseph. It's going to start to come a little more crystal clear because that's what happens when you look at, at pain in the rearview mirror of life is you start to see what God was actually doing in the midst of the brokenness. It empowers us in our ability as a church to see God. That when the temperature gets turned up, to not run away, but to say, God, what are you inviting me into? And in Joseph, we now get to start to see that God was with him, that God was for him, but that God is also providing through Joseph to change the world. Church, I think that's true of you and especially in your neighborhood. That God is with you, he is for you, and he's actually using you wherever you live to actually change the people around you. And what you get to do is you get to point people to the promises in the person of Yahweh. 
I already texted our, our worship team. I was so mad at them this morning because, man, they just point us to Jesus and I was bawling like a baby at first service. I don't know if you've ever been a preacher before, but it's not helpful when you're crying your eyes out and then be like, oh, now we got to go preach. No, here's what I love about my job. All I do is read the Bible really quickly. That's my job is to help you become self-feeders, to read the word. And so that's what we're going to do today. Really quickly, five chapters. We're going to look at his promises because there's nothing better before you go out to Sunday night and Monday than to be rooted in the promises and the person of Yahweh. We're going to see his intentions. And again, it's helpful for me to look at other people's stories because I get inspired because that's no different than my story because we serve the same God. Amen? Would you pray with me, Spirit of God? Would you fall fresh on us? I have nothing to offer your children today, but I want to be true to your word and read well. And we all want to see you, Jesus, high, exalted, lifted up, the God of promises, faithful. As the temperature gets turned up, you are with us and you are for us and you are doing something through us. Spirit of God, speak for your glory, we pray. And everybody said, amen. This story is about the people of God. If you remember, we started this series with the royal family. Anyone know the royal family is super messed up? Remember that? Royal family being Father Abraham and all the train wreck that he called his children, all the lack of faith, all the promises that they didn't trust that we today can still cling to. And I asked you to pre-read because there was going to be this sermon with five chapters. If you didn't pre-read, there's no shame here. You're just going to have a hard time keeping up. Pre-read later and then watch the sermon again. Hear it twice. It usually takes us that long to hear it once. So here we go. As we look at the story today, we're starting one chapter time. Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. And I love this reality. There's a ton of characters we've been seeing in the life and the story of Joseph. And I have a pastor, his name's Rick Dunn. You've met him before. He's out in Knoxville, Tennessee. And Rick says it this way, Drew, I really do, do believe that your story always catches up to you. I love that language. As we look at a story and we see it more fully, your story always catches up to you. There's a meta narrative to that reality. God is telling a story of the people of God and of a new humanity that's being created for a new heaven and a new earth. That's the corporate story of God. And he's creating that story. He does it. He does the work. He's chasing down his people. And we see pieces of that like in the prodigal son. But it's the father that chases the prodigal son. He pursues us. He does the work. So there's a macro story at play. There's also a micro story that's happening in each and every one of yours in my life. Who are some of the characters so far we've seen in the story? Jacob. Remember Jacob's story? It's one full of deceit. Remember Jacob and Esau? And his story will chase him. It'll always catch him. And as that happens, here's the big question. Every day you wake up, the question is, will you meet Jesus in your story or will you keep running away from it? Will you actually meet him in it and say, Jesus, would you heal my brokenness? Would you heal my trauma? You all know that we are full of trauma. It's called life, right? Every one of us walked in this morning with baggage after baggage after baggage, broken relationship, people that let us down. Cancer, sickness, death, trauma after trauma of trauma. So here's Jacob's trauma, story of deceit, a lack of trust. And now we see today how messed up his family is, right? His 12 sons that continue on that lineage, that heritage of deceit and mistrust. Joseph we see in the story today. Joseph actually is one that says, God, would you meet me in my trauma? Something happened to me in the pit, Jesus. Would you meet me in that moment of brokenness? Something is happening to me in prison, in the palace. Would you meet me? And I think we're going to see a beautiful picture of God meeting us in our story in the person of Joseph. We're also going to see the person of Judah. Remember, Judah was really, really messed up. 
Judah was the one that actually proposed that they would sell Joseph to make some money. Hey, we want to get rid of our brother. Let's at least make some coin off of it as well. And so Judah actually got joy in getting rid of Joseph. Judah was mad at his father. He found joy. You ever feel this way as parents that your kids enjoy tormenting you? It's true. It's in the Bible. Judah found joy in tormenting his father, and that's why he got rid of Joseph. Now today in the text, we're going to see God's transforming power through Judah to actually meet us in our story, that when we lean into our story and we give it to Jesus to heal it, then it changes us. I love this line from Rick. Rick says it this way, whatever you run from, runs you. Whatever you run from, runs you. And so here's my prayer for you, church. Stop running today. It's too dang hot outside to run. Stop running. Lean in to what Jesus is doing. Let's look at this story. We're going to see Benjamin, who we really haven't talked about a lot. But Benjamin has to lean into his story. And I think Jesus wants to meet us at the most earliest parts of our trauma to heal them, to restore them, and to give us life in him. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 42. Here we go. Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he says to his sons, 11 of them, hey, why do you look at one another with these weird faces? What's happening? They're having a family huddle. That's what I hope this morning is for us. Family huddle, and dad says, guys, we got no food, we're gonna die, but Egypt has food, can I send you all to Egypt? And the brothers look at each other, why? Because what happened to their brother not that long ago? They beat him up, they threw him in a pit, and they sold him to people that were heading to Egypt. Your story always chases you. You gotta deal with it. And so, so father says to sons, hey, let's go do this. He has no idea what's happening in the hearts of the sons. No idea, but he says, hey guys, let's go down there. But by the way, they said, okay, well, we'll go down, but I'm not giving you Jake, I'm not giving you Benjamin. You can't take Benjamin, why? Because Benjamin comes from my favorite wife. First of all, you shouldn't have a favorite wife. I only have one for a reason, she is my favorite wife, right? <laughs> but remember, part of the sin that we see in the people of God is favoritism, right? And so Jacob, just that he has a favorite wife, that he has a favorite son, why does he love Benjamin so much? Because it's actually his brother, Joseph, that he thinks is dead. From his favorite wife, this is his son. I don't know about you, but we ever love something so much that you won't surrender it to God and let it go? You'll actually strangle it to death out of your love. You ever heard of Al Davis and the Oakland Raiders, right? You love something so much, you just can't let go, and it's gone. So that's what's happening here. And so, so again, Father Jacob, Father Israel, same name. Jacob says, hey, go down to Egypt and, and get ready to go. But by the way, I'm not sending you Benjamin because he feared that harm would happen to him. He didn't want to lose what was his. Church, nothing is yours. It's why I physically try to pray open-handed because it reminds me of my physical presence, my posture, that nothing is actually mine even today. So that's what we see, this favoritism on display. Skipping forward to 42.6. Again, you're going to have to flop a lot without your Bible and on your devices. 42 verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land down in Egypt, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Remember last week, he acquired stuff over the last seven years of abundance so that we'd be ready for these seven years of scarcity. And so he's acquired barns and then houses full of abundance. And Joseph's brothers come and they bow down before him with their faces to the ground. Just pause. A lot of points in these five chapters, you see the fingerprints of God through the story. Remember what God said in Genesis 37 to Joseph? He gave Joseph a dream, and the dream was that your brothers one day will bow down to you. This is the fulfillment of that dream. This is that moment. Now again, please hear me, church. I think God is speaking to you all the time. It's why we read our Bibles. But again, what we say, when we say it, and how we say it matters. I still think Joseph was probably in the wrong when he came to his brothers. Like, guys, can you believe it? You're all going to bow down to me someday. 
The problem wasn't in what Joseph said. It was probably in how he said it. Probably like, guys, I'm going to be like your master. Like, this is going to be amazing. The word, the dream came from God. The dream is true. What's not always true is how you and I steward the visions of God. Our tone must match our theology and our timing. And so, again, I think that was one of the things we look back at a young Joseph. Remember, we were in this series of looking back at VG, our younger self. We look back, and here's what we should have been reminding ourselves every step of the way. God is faithful. Yeah, but it's really hot outside. God is faithful. God is faithful. And so, again, God gives Joseph this dream. Now, chapters later, years later, it's coming to fruition. Joseph's brothers come down, and they bow themselves before him in their faces. 42, verse 8. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but... They did not recognize him. All sorts of commentaries here that reference this. Here's where I land on 42 verse 8. I think when Joseph was in the pit, I think when Joseph was in prison, I think the Spirit of God did real work with Joseph. By the way, I think the Spirit of God wants to do real work with you right now. Because again, we live on the surface of the sun. He's with you. He's for you. You got two years sitting in prison without all the distractions of the world. That's a gift from God. Because in the gap, if you get God, you win. And so I think part of what we're seeing in 42.8 is simply this. Joseph did work with Jesus. Joseph let the Spirit of God transform his heart. And that's what happens when your story chases up to you. You don't think Joseph had trauma from his brothers beating him up, throwing him in a pit, selling him off. Joseph had real issues. Trust, trauma, fear. And yet I think because of the work of Jesus, when we give our story to Jesus, he meets us in it, he heals us in it, and he makes us healthy so that when the temperature gets turned up and the brothers show up, we can respond with grace because God has given us grace. I think that's part of what we're seeing in 42.8. Joseph has his story catch up to him, and yet God has been healing him and offering him hope. The brothers, they don't recognize Joseph. Why? Because I think on some level, the brothers are like, we don't ever want to say the word Egypt. We don't ever want to say the word Joseph. This is a sin in our hearts, and your sin does haunt you. Is that true for anybody else? You do your best to be like, I don't want to talk about it. It's not real. It's not real. No, it's still real. Egypt is still real. Uh, anytime you see a color of, of many coats, you twitch. Anytime someone says the word Joseph, guys, this is God's grace pursuing you. This is God's grace meeting you in this moment so that you can get healing, not haunting. It's not the spirit of God haunting you because of your sin. It's the spirit of God pursuing you so you can deal with your sin and recognize that he can make it new again. Amen? I think that's what's happening in 42.8. But the brothers, they don't recognize. They don't want to recognize. They are pretending ignorance is bliss. It is not bliss when it's sin that separates you from God forever. And so in this context, Joseph, I think, in 42, he recognizes, he recognizes not just God's fingerprints on the story, but he is holding the pen and writing the story itself. Let's get forward in 42, verses 9 through 25. There's this brother bonding time. Now, again, they don't know they're bonding. Joseph is bonding with them. They don't know he's the brother. Verse 13, and they said, we'll be your servants. We're, we're the 12 brothers. This is who we are. Because Joseph's like, dude, you're spies. And he knows they're not spies. He knows they're his brothers, Right? And so in this context, he's, he's kind of messing with them, but I don't think in a sinful way. Some commentators are like, is he just punking them? No. I think he's received healing and he wants healing for them, but that means they must meet Jesus in their story. That means they must take the time. And so Joseph says, hey, are, are you spies? We're not spies. No, we're these 12 brothers. One's back at home with dad, 12 brothers from one man, but one is no more. Eh. Isn't it funny? You ever lied to someone about them to their face? How's that go for you? Well, let's see how it goes for the brothers. 
They tell Joseph, yeah, well, there's 12 of us, but like one's at home and one's no more, one's dead. And Joseph's like, huh. I think God does that with us in our sin. Huh. I want more for you guys. I want you to trust me. On the third day, Joseph said to them, okay, if you're not spies, then here's what you'll need to do to live because I fear God. If you're honest men, just stop for a moment. That is the funniest line in the Bible today. They just lied to me. But if you're honest men, text goes on. Let one of your brothers remain here. The 10 of you, nine of you now go back and the rest of you go carry the grain that you came to get from Egypt for the famine of your households. And he sends them back. So the brothers come to Egypt. He equips them with grain. He sends them back. Then they said to one another, uh, actually, in truth, we got some heart issues that we need to deal with. In truth, because we're honest men, but not honest to him, but we're honest men to each other. We know what we did, that we are guilty concerning our brother. We're guilty because we heard his cries in the pit. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. And that's why this distress is upon us. Their story will always chase you and it will always catch up to you. We've got to deal with our stories, not be afraid of them, but we have to deal with them and meet Jesus in them. Now, here's what I love. They did not understand. They had this whole conversation in front of Joseph, but they don't know who Joseph is, that they actually speak the same language because they were using an interpreter. And so as this happens, there was an interpreter between them. And then he, Joseph, turns away from them and he weeps. By God's grace, I did not grow up in a home that told me to not cry. Weeping is a part of worship. Weeping is a part of meeting God in the moment where you need the most healing. Weeping is you going before a holy rice God and saying, God, I got nothing left. Will you meet me and will you heal me? And so Joseph turns his face from them. He weeps because the worship team just messed him up. And then he controls himself and he comes back and he returns to them after controlling himself. And he says this to them. He took Simeon. He said, I'm a man of my word. I'm gonna take Simeon. Now you all go back to meet your father and your family. The text presses on as one of them opened his sack. So they leave with all their provisions from Joseph. They leave and they go on the journey. Then they pause to feed their, their, their animals. And as they do that at the lodging place, one of them opens up his sack and he sees that money is in the mouth. Remember, dad sent them with money and the money's still there. And now they are freaking out. There's a lot of heart attacks in the text today. That's what happens when it's too hot outside, right? They freak out. Their hearts fail them. They're like, what did we just do? This man, this, this leader from Pharaoh gave us food and we just stole money. Who did that? Their hearts failed them and they returned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? You ever notice you blame God for all your junk? What, what, what is that God has done to us? No, guys, you did this to yourself. It's called sin and your story always chases you. It'll always catch up to you. And yet we do that all the time. There's a difference when you wake up in the morning and say, God, what are you inviting me into? Than when the, the, the trial that comes, you say, God, what are you doing? Those are different things. Your tone must match your theology and your timing. God, what are you doing here? These brothers are not saying, Yahweh, you are good. What are you doing? They're saying, man, we are not good. What's happening to us? In this context, God is providing them grace upon grace. He's meeting them in their story. Verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, they get home. It wasn't just one man that had their money. It was all of them. All of them, 10 bundles of gray, 10 sacks with the grain also came money that was returned. And when they saw their father and all the bundles of money, they were afraid. More heart attacks are happening. Jacob, their father, said to them, you bereaved me of my child, Joseph, already. Now I don't have Simeon. And now you're telling me that this official from Pharaoh wants me to send Benjamin back? Oh my goodness, all of this has come against me. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to be extreme. I don't know if you know that about me. Life is short, hell is hot, let's go, right? Like, 
It's who I am. I have a tendency when the Giants lose the game to be like, the world's ending. (laughs) Church, I don't know why you say that. I don't know why I say it, but it's actually not true until God says it. The world is not ending. It's not. He holds the world in his hands. He's the author and perfecter of faith. He's the giver of life and of the breath in your lungs. There's too many times I, little Andrew, have a tendency when something doesn't go my way, the temperature gets turned up, that I say, all the world has come against me. When the truth of the matter is God loves me so much that he's meeting me in this moment, that he's allowed my story to catch me so that I get him because there's nothing better. That's what's actually happening. He's allowing the pain and the gaps and the temperature to increase so that we get God. That's what he's doing. And yet if we're not careful, because it's hot outside, we'll have a tendency to never go outside because it's hot and it's going to hurt us and it's going to cost us. And so right now in this context, dad is just saying, I'm not sending you Benjamin. I've already lost one son. Now I might have lost two. I'm not sending you Benjamin. In fact, the reality is chapter 42 ends the same way it started. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. No Benji. No Benji. It's not going to happen. My son shall not go down with you. His brother is dead. He's the only one that I have left. Now, what do the other brothers say at this point? Uh, Dad, what about me? Dad, do you even love Simeon? Clearly not as much as Benji. I'm not doing it. Why? You do this and it would bring all my gray hairs down to sorrow to Sheol. Now, I think it's important, church, that we pause, that we have family huddles and we say, what's the worst thing that could happen to us? We talk about this as a family with our kids a lot because, again, it's the end of the world. I struck out in a baseball game. No. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? We, we have cancer. Okay. What's the worst thing that happened to you? Well, we could die. Okay. Church, don't miss this. For those of us who trust and treasure Jesus, is death something we fear? I don't say that simplistically. I don't say that as a pastor that doesn't deal with death all the time. But don't miss this. For those who love and trust and treasure Jesus, death is not an enemy, but it actually is a gateway to glory. And so dad here says, no, you don't understand. If I lose my son, I'm going to die. But if you know that God holds your life and your health in his hand, then there is nothing to lose. There is no bad news in the kingdom of God is what we see in the life of Joseph. He says, no, no, you you can't do this. And then we get to the next chapter. Joseph's brothers, we're going to pick up the pace. That was actually really slow, just so you know. Next chapter. Joseph's brothers now return back to Egypt. Sometimes God allows suffering in our life where we are so desperate and dependent that all we have left is to turn to him. My hope for you as pastor is that you start with him, not with how we're going to get out of this. Way too often our prayer life, of course, is like, God, I've tried everything else. Now I'm going to turn to you. Start with him. It's why we wear those desperate dependent t-shirts. Life in father's life has gotten so bad. He's so desperate. They got no food, guys. They're all going to die. They are desperate and they are dependent. The famine was so severe in the land that now look who steps in. It's Judah. Judah steps into the story. Now, I love this about Judah. You have to remember Judah has been a dud, not a stud. If you study the life of Judah, Judah's the one that proposed the sale of Joseph in the story we've looked at. Before the story we looked at, Judah's also the one that had sexual sin with his daughter-in-law. Like, there's all sorts of messed up realities in the world. This is pretty bad. This is the family of God. Welcome to the royal family, right? Like, this is the people of God that don't trust, that don't believe, that don't lean in. But it's Judah who steps in with Israel, his father. Remember, Jacob's name is also Israel. Israel's name is also Jacob. 
He steps in and he says this, Father, send the boy with me. Now, he's probably 30 at this point. He's not a boy. But again, as you have adult children, I'm getting there. They're always still your baby boys, right? I don't care how big they get. They're always your baby boys. He says, Dad, we all know that you love him more than us. We have those conversations in our homes too. I got a favorite oldest child, a favorite youngest son, and a favorite daughter. It works out really well for me. If I had 12, it would complicate things, right? Dad, we already know this. We're not going to deal with your story. You got to deal with your story. I got to deal with my story, Judah says, but I got to deal with my story and I need to lean in, not run away. Judah leans into his story. Dad, this isn't about you. This is about the people of Yahweh. Dad, this goes back to Genesis 17. Now in Genesis 17, God has been making promises to father Abraham, their great grandfather. The promise is simply this, that through you, I will create so many inhabitants that you can't count the stars in the sky to be the same number. Now at this point, 210 years later, guess how many people there are? 70. Man, the people of God need to get busy, right? Like they got to pick up the pace. And so at this point, I understand fully Judah's leaning in. I think on some level, one commentator said it this way. Maybe Satan thought that, that Joseph was going to be the line from where Jesus was going to come from because he got all the goodness, right? He got the coat. He got the favor. He got the favoritism. It'd be easy, I think, for Satan, who is not all wise, doesn't know all things to say, Joseph is the guy. Maybe that's why Joseph went through all this rubbish. I don't know. But actually, who does the line of Jesus come through? Not Joseph, but Judah. Comes through Judah. Judah, this messed up man that God confronts in his story and says, Judah, don't run away from your story. You've been doing that all these years. I'm going to meet you in it. And so Judah rises up and he says, Father, I promise both we and you and also our little ones, you got to send us. It's desperate. We're dependent. But God is doing something. Let's go. That's what happens. And so in verse 11 through 14, dad sends double the money. Pay attention, dad sends double money, why? Because the first time they came back and all 10 rounds of money came back with them, so he sends those 10 back. He also sends another 10, why? Because I think that's part of the story, but also why? How many pieces of money was, was actually Joseph sold for? Anybody remember? 20. 20. Guys, all these details matter because God is using everything for his glory and for your good. Don't miss it. It's why I love these five chapters all at once. God is in all of the details. And then the brothers get back. They don't just come with the money. They also come with all these gifts. Why? Because Jacob had a pattern that when he really messed up, he would give you gifts. By the way, I'm okay with it. You want to really mess up and give us gifts? That's great. So Jacob, remember Jacob and Esau, Genesis 33, he sends gifts to Esau. Brother, I'm so sorry. Please take my gifts. And it's cool and it's neat and it communicates. I messed up and I'm sorry. Please don't miss this. You cannot buy God's forgiveness. It's a part of the story and it's beautiful and it matches so that we don't miss the details, but you cannot buy grace. Grace is freely given, never earned, never deserved. It's a gift that was given for you. And so Jacob now sends money. He sends gifts in chapter 43. They have this brother bonding dinner party. Now, again, the other brothers don't know this is Joseph. They might even think that this is like my last dinner. You know, prisoners will get their last meal. They show up. They know they have the money. They understand how dire their situation is. They're coming to beg for mercy. In fact, so much so that we realize that during this time, in verses 19 to 23, they pull aside one of the clerks, one of the stewards, and they're like, we promise we're not guilty. We promise we're good. Church, can we just stop for a second? You are not good. By you, I mean me, I mean we, I mean these brothers. Are the brothers good? No, they are messed up. They're messed up humans. 
but they're children of God and God loves them and he's with them and he's for them, he's working through them. But way too often we say, no, we're good. And so he pulls the steward and says, God, we're good. And the steward says, look, I know you're not guilty of this, but you're guilty of so many other things. You might think you're good in this area, but you're really not good. We do not earn the favor of God. It's why we call it grace. It's why grace matters to us. It's why we can't sing songs like Amazing Grace and not be overwhelmed. It is amazing grace that Jesus stands at the door and knocks and he invites us in to his banqueting table that he prepares for you and me. It's what we looked at in Revelation 3, 20. I will come in with him and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. Church, we don't deserve the breath in our lungs, but you got it today. Glory be to God, amen. That's what the story is reminding us of as the brothers come back. So they think they might be eating their last meal. They don't know what's gonna happen next. They try to get in with good graces with the clerk. The steward goes back now and obviously here's the next step of the dinner. Then Joseph comes home. They brought into the house all these people and the presents that they had brought with them and they bowed down to the ground. Second time, Genesis 37 comes to fruition. All of this is not so Joseph can feel good about himself, but it's so Joseph can feel good about his God. God is with him, he's for him, he's leading through him, and he's controlling himself. Why? Because he's weeping. That's why. Because God's faithfulness to you and through you causes us to weep through worship. It causes us to say, this is amazing grace. I don't deserve it, I couldn't earn it. God gave it to me. It's a gift that God has given me. And then the text goes on. And so three things happen here in verse 32 that we would miss in our context, I'm afraid. So let me highlight it. They serve him, Joseph, by himself. They serve themselves, the brothers, by themselves. And then the Egyptians who ate with him also ate by themselves. There's like three different dinner parties in the same home, right? It's like a big banquet hall and they're all hanging out in the palace. Three different meals. Why? Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. The Egyptians as a culture had these, these rules and regulations. Literally, if a Greek ate off a fork, they'd have to throw the fork away. They were that segregated as a culture and as a community. This is good news for the Israelites. Why? Because God even uses bad plans for his glory. As we follow the people of God and Israel, you know what they're really good at? Intermarrying with different religions. That's what they're really good at. Even though God says, don't do that. You have one throne of your heart and it's a seat for Jesus. You cannot be unequally yoked with other people in the marriage bed or in your family bed if you don't actually have the same king that sits on the throne of your heart. And yet no matter how many times he said that to the people of Israel, you know what they did over and over and over again? They'd intermarry with the people of Canaan. They'd mess it up. They would divide the throne of their heart and it would not lead to a holy people of God set apart for the purposes of God. And so again, God knew that Israel wasn't going to be able to do that. So what did God do? He put them in Egypt for 400 years where the Egyptians wouldn't intermarry with them, even though they probably wanted to with them. Like that's how good our God is, that he sets up even the brokenness of this world and he redeems it for his glory. The Egyptians would not eat with the Hebrews. That's an abomination to the Egyptians. The text goes on 33. And so they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in what? Amazement. One commentator said this was like one in 40 million chances. I'm not a mathematician. I've not done the numbers myself. But how in the world? They don't know this is Joseph. They don't know what's happening here. But this leader from Pharaoh arranges all the way from Benjamin all the way up to Reuben in birth order. And they look at each other and they say, this is weird. No, this is God. <laughs> it's not weird. Way too often we say things like, what a coincidence. Nope, that's God. That's God moving and working through your story, trying to meet you in your story so you would meet him in his. That's what's happening here. 
And so Benjamin's portion then becomes five times as much as their others. I think in this context, Joseph says, hey, did the brothers learn anything? I know I've learned a lot. I know God's met me in the pit. God met me in the prison. God's met me in the palace. I wonder if they learned anything. And so again, I think Joseph is just sitting there going, this is going to be really fun. So he gives them five times as much. And it feels like in this context, the brothers are growing in their faith because they don't throw a pity party. They press on and they move on. The brothers then get a chance to be tested. You could say it was Joseph again. I don't think Joseph is doing anything of evil intentions. I think he's being used by God for his intentions. And so God allows testing in our lives so that we would get him. So it would lead to repentance, that it would actually lead to grace in our moments of brokenness. Chapter 44, then God provides through Joseph. He provides to him over and over and over again, three times. He provides grain, he provides money, and there's also this whole like chalice thing that this cup from Joseph himself that goes in the bag. Three things goes in their resources to go back to dad with. And then the steward confronts them. Joseph says, hey, go confront them on the road. Go go catch them a mile out and have a conversation with them because I want them to have a moment to repent, to receive grace. You can't get grace if you don't repent. You can't earn it, but you can't actually receive it if you don't get off the throne of your heart to give it back to God. And so the steward confronts them in verse 4, chapter 44. Follow after the men, Joseph says. When you overtake them, say to them, why have you done this? This is what I often want to say to people when they settle for lesser joys. Why? Why have you done this? And then here's what the brothers say. No, no, no. We promise we're not those dudes. Seriously? We know you're those dudes, but they say, no, 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 we have changed. We are not those dudes. We would not steal from the Pharaoh's official or from Joseph. We wouldn't do that. And they make a deal. They say, yeah, but if we did, take that person, put him to death is what it actually says here in verse nine. Whichever one of your servants is found with that chalice shall die. And we will also all become the Lord's servants. And so then in verse 12, they start to search the bags from oldest to youngest. They start with Reuben and then they move on, they move on, they move on. And after, after a bunch, they're like, whew, we made it. And then they get to Benjamin and they're like, Benjamin's the favorite. He never screws up. That's what dad says. He never screws up. And then they open Benjamin's bag and what do they find? The cup was found in Benjamin's sack and they tore their clothes. What it means when they tore their clothes, that means it's as bad as it could possibly get. This is the worst thing in the world. Now pay attention here. Earlier in the text, Judah was the one that caused his father to tear his clothes when Joseph, he thought, died. Now all the brothers tear their clothes. This is growth for them. This is them saying, we used to find joy in our father's misery. Now we're torn up about it. It's the worst thing in the world. And every man loaded their donkey and they go back to the city to meet with Pharaoh and his official. There's a lot of growth that takes place here, church. Don't miss it. A lot of things that are happening with the people of God. When we meet God in our story, he redeems it. They didn't resent Benjamin for the five servings. They trusted each other when they were falsely accused. I don't know about you, but it would be easy to just bail on Benjamin, right? Benjamin, that's your mess. You did it and walked away. But they didn't. They stuck together. They didn't abandon each other. They humbled themselves for Ben. They said, we'll go into slavery. They offered themselves as slaves. They worried about the effects on dad. They tore their clothes and they were willing to sacrifice and substitute. And who leads the charge? Judah. Guys, we don't worship men. We follow men who help us worship Jesus. But we don't worship men. Judah's messed up. He's got issues like everyone else in this room. And yet Judah says, no, 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 I'm trusting that God's better is better. I'm in. This testing is an opportunity for me to deepen my dependence, to recognize that I am desperate and to cry out for him. That's what happens in chapter 44. Then we turn to 45 and Joseph now says to his brothers, they come back and they meet Joseph. This is a dramatic scene. They meet Joseph and Joseph says this, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brothers could not answer him. They were blown away. They were dismayed. They're like, wait, is this really you? 
the text goes on to show us that there's actually signs and symbols that would say he probably showed him whether it was marks or scars or he told stories that only the brothers would actually know. He's like, it is me. They're like, I don't believe it. And have you been messing with us all this time? He's like, I just want you to get Jesus. That's all I want. I want you to receive this test as an opportunity to grow, to repent and to worship God. Verse four, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. You ever been in the middle of sin and actually had to confront the person you sinned against? You kind of avoid that person like the plague, right? They didn't do anything wrong, but you did. Remember the garden in Genesis after Adam and Eve sinned, what do they do? They go and they hide because that's what we want to do with sin in our flesh. Notice Joseph here as a, as a precursor to who Jesus is. Jesus wants you to deal with your sin, to recognize that you can't deal with it. Don't hide it from him. Give it to him. Joseph says, come near to me. Don't hide come near to me. And they came near and he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, but do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourself because you sold me here. I think way too often when we settle for lesser joys and we sin, we hide from it. We beat ourselves up. Church, stop. Stop beating yourself up for your sin and worship the one who was beat up for your sin. Stop beating. And so Joseph just says, like the foreshadowing of Jesus, come near to me. Don't hide from me. I'm coming to you. I want you to get God in the midst of your brokenness. I got God because of your brokenness. I got two years of sitting in a pit. I got time in a prison and I got God and God sent me to preserve your life. For the famine that has been in these lands for two years, it's not overdone. We got seven, five more years are to come. That's the why behind the what. You think it's about you. It's about God. He says it again. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant God was the one that was doing the work. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Those aren't Drew's words. They're not Paul's in the New Testament. They're not a cool song on K-Love. They're from the Bible and they're all over the Bible. But God, but God, but God, but God. And Joseph says, now hurry, get back to dad. We got work to do. And Drew's trying to get through five chapters. So hurry up. He says, go, life's short, hell's hot, get back to dad. But they pause. I think that they celebrate God's grace as brothers. They hug, they kiss. If you reach 45, you'll see that. Joseph then sends them back to the family. I love this. He doesn't just send him. Pharaoh also steps in. Pharaoh's like, this is an incredible story. Can I send resources? Of course, because God always uses and pays rulers for his glory. I love that. Just like he used King Cyrus, he uses Pharaoh and he sends wagons and resources. He says, go back and tell your father that you are alive. And they do. They go back. But God sends them. And they get back and they tell dad and Joseph is still alive and he's the ruler of all of Egypt and the father's heart becomes numb. Another heart attack. Because that's what happens when it's too hot. And no matter how much your body sweats, it's not good enough. He's numb. He says, I don't know, I don't know if I believe this, but when they told him all the words of Joseph, which they had said to them, when he saw the wagons that this was actually from Pharaoh, who actually was the leader, and Joseph was used by God through him, then Jacob's spirit, his soul was revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I just want to go see him before I die. I mean, that's kind of the heart of every father. I just want my kids ready to meet Jesus. That's what I've said before as a pastor that our job and our role is to actually not to preach sermons. Our job as pastors, as life group leaders, as friends, our job as dads, our jobs as husbands and parents, our job is to get the people around us ready to meet Jesus. Jacob, on some level, I think he says, I don't know if I've actually done a good job, 
but actually I just want to go see him and make sure that he's ready because then I can actually die. The text goes on in 46 and we see that homecoming. It's a beautiful picture. God speaks to Jacob in a vision and a dream. Jacob shows up and when Jacob comes, he leaves everything. He grabs all of his little ones, all of his wives, all of his livestock, all of his goods, all of his offspring, all of them. This is the Old Testament version of the fishermen that are on the seashore with Jesus. And it says they dropped their nets and they followed him. Jacob leaves it all. He burned the ships. He's gone. He's following Yahweh, maybe for the first time in his life. He's following God at any cost. And he comes back, and this is what takes place. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including sons' wives. There were 66 persons, plus the four others means that there were 70 total. It took 215 years to get to 70, and yet what God's going to do in the next 400 years in Egypt, as he sets them apart, he's going to build them to over 2 million people. Something I continue to discover is God does not work on my timeline, and it's always slower than I want. God moves slower to go deeper and actually to go faster. His slowness is actually perfect. We're the ones that go too fast. That's what we see in the text. Waiting time is not wasted time. It never is, not when time is held by the author and perfecter of our faith. It's his time. Let's not miss, it took Abraham 25 years to add one son, Isaac. It took Isaac 60 years to add one more son. It took Jacob 50 or 60 years to have his 12 sons, because it's a lot of work to have 12 kids, right? None of this time is wasted. In 430 years, Egypt would, Israel would leave Egypt with 600,000 men, 2 million people, and there's this emotional reunion between dad and son. He sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way of Goshen. He shows up and Joseph prepared his chariot. He went and he meets Israel at his father in Goshen. And here's what dad says. Now let me die because I have seen your face and I know that you're still alive. This is as good as it gets. As a pastor, there's nothing better than knowing that you all are ready to meet Jesus. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than as the temperature gets turned up and our bodies keep sweating. Guys, this is a gift from God. I'm showing you I'm uncomfortable because this is called life. But God is with you. He is for you. And he's actually using the temperature increases for his glory and for your good. Don't miss it. So what are the implications? I mean, there's a ton. I just pray we're seeing these patterns of provision. I say we see the patterns of brokenness. But I say we, I hope we see Jesus in it. The first implication is, is simply this. Do you recognize this thing called a, a heat tourism? You heard that? It's stupid. I heard it on the news the other day. <laughs> heat tourism. People spend big bucks to go to Death Valley. I don't know about you, but I want to avoid Death Valley. And they go because they want to take this picture next to the visitor center because they want to be there when the temperature's as hot as it can be. I mean, look at this guy. See how happy he is? Like, he's got no pit stains on his blue shirt. That's impressive. 131 degrees. Now look at the name. It's the Furnace Creek Visitor Center. No. No. That's dumb. But please hear me as your pastor. Here's my hope for you. It's hot out there. That's not just real. It's a metaphor, but it's real. It's hot. And so when the temperature gets turned up, I see the life of Joseph. I see the life of our people that continue to get bad news in their cancer journeys that continue to have relationships that are broken, that continue to pray and watch, and God says there's a different step, and I see the joy of our people, and I'm convinced it's rooted in the Spirit of God in you and the Word of God played out through you.
Because sermons on the platform church, please hear me, they're cheap. It's not that they don't matter, but they're not as powerful as sermons in the pit. When we are in the pit, because we know that God is good, we know that he's good, then we as the people of God possess a peace and an eternal joy when the temperature increases. And that doesn't mean that we don't sweat. It doesn't mean that it's not hot. I don't care what it feels like. It hurts. The pain is real, but God is good all the time. And all the time. And it can't be words that we say with our mouth. It's got to be words that live on our heart. And when they do, when the temperature gets turned up, because we know, we know vintage that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We know that. We don't have to know what it's going to look like in the future. We just have to know who holds the future. So that's implication one. And it's rooted in the text. It's rooted because we know that we can trust God. We know that we can trust him. We know that his promises are true. That we can be eternally grateful. And people don't understand. They're like, it's so hot outside. Why are you happy? Because God is good all the time. That's why. And let me tell you about my Jesus. And when they ask, we need to be bold. Joseph, we need to be bold with our testimony and ready to preach. But the preaching is not here. It's there because we know all the ifs lead to something. I mean, this is what we've just seen the last few chapters. If Joseph's family wasn't so jacked, I'm sorry, that word offends some people, I'll repent, I'll change it for next service, messed up. We know that if Joseph's family wasn't so messed up, they never would have sold him off as a slave. We know that if Joseph's brothers don't sell him off as a slave, he probably never goes to the power of Egypt. We know that if Joseph didn't go to Egypt, he never would have been sold to Potiphar and actually pleased Potiphar and was put in power by Potiphar. We know that if Joseph never worked as Potiphar's slave, Potiphar's wife never would have falsely accused him of rape. She wouldn't have known him. But if Potiphar's wife never falsely accused Joseph of rape, then Joseph wouldn't have gone to prison. And if Joseph doesn't go to prison, he wouldn't have built a reputation of a faithful man when the temperature was hot and never have met the baby butler of Pharaoh. And if that doesn't happen, he never would have had a chance to interpret their dreams. And if that doesn't happen, then he never would have been invited by Pharaoh to interpret his dream. And if Joseph never interpreted Pharaoh's dream, he never would have been invited into the palace and actually promoted and actually come up with this idea that no one would have wisely prepared for the terrible famine to come. And if Joseph doesn't prepare the world and set up Egypt for success, then his family back in Canaan would have died in the famine, never would have ever come to Egypt for God's plans. If Joseph's family back in Canaan dies in the famine, then the Messiah could not have come from a family line that had ended. If the Messiah doesn't come, then there's no way for the wrath of God to be satisfied in Christ. It has to be poured out on me because if Jesus never came, then we are all still remaining dead in our sin without hope in this world. But God, this is the story of Joseph. This is the story of God's grace, which is sufficient for you of his glory on display. Because God is good, we possess a peace and eternal joy. Because we can trust God, it gives us an opportunity to celebrate, to be eternally grateful for all the ifs that lead to victory in Christ. That's what they lead to, church. That is your future. I don't know what the future holds. I know who holds the future, and he holds it with victory for you. He holds it with victory for Joseph, and he gives it to you today in grace. By grace through grace for his glory. Amen. Father God, we come before you and we receive your grace and your mercy. We receive your sonship and your daughtership that we didn't earn, that we didn't deserve. We are messed up like all the brothers. We are not good, but God, you are good. And so we worship you. 
We worship you because you meet us in our moments of brokenness. Because we this morning get to focus on the son, not, not the S-U-N, that, that bothers me, but you, Jesus, the son, that give us victory, that died so we wouldn't have to, as the wrath of God was poured out on you, that turned what the enemy intended for evil and your intentions are for our good and for your glory. Church, let's worship him right now. Would you stand and sing this with me?